0: That's something, especially somebody in the beginning is not considering. They're thinking, Ooh, I made $300 a day. Well, I mean, if your overhead's $300 a day, you didn't make anything. That's the voice of
1: Ronnie Fulton, owner of Fulton Fine Woodworks. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Ronnie Fulton, owner of the Central Kentucky-based furniture company Fulton Fine Woodworks. Ronnie put in his time in the corporate world before he decided that following his dreams of owning his own furniture company was right for him. But once he made that jump, he never looked back. Making a name for himself as a high-end builder who would take on projects that no one else could do set him apart in the industry and put him in the very enviable position to not only be able to charge for what He needs to make on each project, but be able to charge for what he wants to make on each project Follow along as we talk about how you move from working in the corporate world to working for yourself the way you can check your pricing nationally, why going into the trades used to be frowned upon, and much more. Ronnie has a wealth of knowledge at his fingertips. So let's get into it and hear his story in his own words.
0: Early as I can remember back is like around age five. I would watch, I would know when this old house was coming on, which was the closest thing we probably had to like an HGTV. And I would wait for that show to come on and I just loved to watch the building process Um, I remember that at an early age and then in a store I would pick up magazines that were building magazines and definitely that's where my interest was Um, I was in the generation of school where it was like what type of college degree do you want to get and the closest thing that my counselors thought that I needed to be was an architect and so I took drafting for four years in high school and um, I I like to draw so I thought hey you know That's what I wanna be, an architect. And I went to college in the first semester I dropped out because I realized that I did not want to um, pursue the life of a desk drawing. I wanted, well at the time I didn't know, but I actually wanted to do the work and I still at this time did not know. And I put a lot of blame on that to just the, at the time the educational practice was that you don't do uh, vocational trade work. You can't make it in life like that. And I think a lot of people my age, we were told that. And I think we're seeing the results of that right now, shortage of people in the trades. So instead, after dropping out, I had computer background from high school. I actually had one all the way through and I was self-taught. And I landed a job at a local corporation called Lexmark. It's sold now to uh, other companies, but they made printers. They hired me on the spot because of my knowledge of computers. So I was there for two years and then got another notch in my hat in the tech world I jumped to Toyota's corporate headquarters and and what some people would say was your dream job I had that and that kept me busy I was there for 14 years and I liked it but I still felt like something was missing and during that time while I was working I was working on my own houses and I was amassing a tool collection and I was getting more into building things for my house, built-ins and furniture type things, um, from from moldings to uh, anything in the house, uh, remodeling, what, whatever, I just had an extreme interest in it. But still at that time, even though it came to where people were like, you should do this for a living, in my mind, I thought, well, you can't really make money in doing that. I, I gotta stay in my tech world. And that, that was a 14 year thing for me that I was stuck, not really happy, I call it cubicle life so I'm sitting, uh, not completely happy, making really good money, but not completely happy. And I had coworkers I started doing jobs for, and they, they're telling me you, you need to need to do this. And, um, my wife found out she had cancer and, um, we had a one and three year old and it was a scary time. We got through it. She had a, she had chemotherapy and radiation and she actually got the all clear that she was, she was okay again. And once that happened, I remember telling her, I was like, I just, life's short. We don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. I'm not happy. I, I want to leave. I just want to start out. And she said, failure's not an option. And well, let's do this. So we did it and I made the jump and that was 13 years ago. And it's, it's been a fun ride. I feel like I've learned a lot and I feel like that I have a lot to give to people who would be wanting to take the same path, especially from corporate world because there was a lot learned there that has helped me in my business. It's been a great ride.
1: Life is short is, is true when following your passion is important, but you can't always do it blindly. You can't always just jump on in and expect to succeed. You need to, even if you have that passion, you need to be able to physically do the work. You need to be able to mentally do the work. You need to have, a foundation, whether it is in the actual furniture business or a foundation that you know, you're going to follow after and and build, but you need to know certain things to be successful. And that that's just the long and short of it.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. I credit not on purpose, but just doing some side work with some of my coworkers and friends, people I knew while I was still in the corporate world really gave me a taste of what how much you have to charge to actually make money because when you're doing it for yourself or your own home you don't really keep track of the time that you're spending but when you do it for a client you realize really quickly that the time adds up as you know and you really have to charge a lot more than what you think to make money and then you know what I got the the knowledge smack in the head of realizing that how much overhead is when I and what I laugh. I have the papers when I was figuring it out on corporate time what I needed to make in my business. It's humorous what I thought I needed to make because what you don't what people don't see is the what you pay the IRS and what you pay in taxes and all those things. At the end of the year, I'm always surprised to see what those totals are because it's like, man, they're the true winners in a business because they make they no matter what get paid. And you've got to make sure you get paid at the end of the day too. But when you look at materials, the the tax type bills. The um, you know, rent, all those things, it, it really adds up. So I've had to learn all that. I call that learning on the streets. I had to learn all of that. But um, pricing was a big thing that I had to get a quick hold on because I saw that if you don't have your pricing right, you can go out of business really quick. It really does
1: all add up, and it it almost feels like. And this isn't this isn't exact math, but it always feels like projects take twice as long. To do than you yeah. than you think and you get half as much money at the end of the day yeah. as you thought so you have to take you yeah. have to take that in mind and i want to really get into the pricing i really want to get into your pricing and that aspect of your business because i think that you can share a lot with everybody listening but i want to go back first to something that you said in the beginning about trades getting a bad rap for so long and going into the trades was seen as something less than a regular job and now it's hard to it's hard to imagine that because there's such a a premium put on people who can do stuff with their hands now it's like If you build stuff, if you're a maker or a furniture maker, or you have a set of skills like that, you're really held on a pedestal. People are excited Mm -hmm. to see that kind of stuff, but it wasn't always the case. And you definitely have to credit this old house and a lot of other people in the industry for really, really helping people like you who had that dream of building stuff to keep that dream alive is something that not only was a worthy job to pursue, but also one that, you know, you could hold, you could hold up high like a show like that was, was something that, that gained respect for the industry. So I do appreciate that. And I want to take that moment to say there was a different time where even though furniture making is sounds like a, an exciting and fun, Profession now, it wasn't always the case, and there was a lot of people who paved the way to bring it to where it is today.
0: Yeah, I feel like I had a front row seat to that change because I remember very clearly in high school, and when when a kid wasn't doing well in grades, the counselors, the common thing was like maybe they need to look at going to vocational school. And all I knew in my mind, this is honest. I mean, I. I thought when you went on that bus to wherever you went to that vocational school, it meant you were a loser, like you were borderline like future prison material. And that's the way they acted. And now to know that those kids were going to mechanic school, welding school, all these. It was framing carpentry. I should have been on that bus. (laughs) And I don't I did not realize that until I was out of high school for like 15 years that I had my counselors did not do a good job of figuring out what I should be doing because I was on the wrong path, but I didn't wanna go down that path because I was told pretty much that that was the wrong path to go down. And it's so wrong, especially today. But even at that time, you could get out and make really good money, tool and die, welding, all those careers have always paid really good money. But I think that like my parents' generation just had ingrained in their head, if you don't go to college, it's not about trades; it's about going to college. And I think all of our parents listen so well, we have an entire generation now population of of college graduates with no skill and that's where my son being 14 has he's worked most of his life since he could walk in the shop and he doesn't currently have plans on going to college he wants to go to a trade school but uh, I've we've talked about as long as he keeps his head on straight and learns his skills he will never have to worry about where his next dollar is coming from he will be all right so that's a I've seen full circle and now I see it with my own and I'm trying to direct him where his interests are, because I think that if we don't figure out our interest early on, we can go down a 15-year path in the wrong direction. And and I I think I did that in some ways, but in other ways, I have a firm foundation that maybe I didn't get in college about business smarts and about um, a lot of the Toyota principles, which I've applied to my own business. And and that's been a help. So sometimes I I wish I started earlier, but other times I think it probably, it, it all worked out for the best.
1: Being well-rounded is important. Knowing where you want to be, but also knowing a lot of other things that you can pull from to make your main goal possible is important. So I do agree that having a wider worldview helps and is for the most part a good thing in business. Now, there is money to be made in the trades. There is money to be made in furniture making and you mentioned it a little bit about your pricing and how it changed from when you were doing projects for friends all the way up to now where you've had a successful company for many years let's talk about how your pricing developed from that first couple of jobs when you were still working in corporate
0: america to how it evolved to where it is today. One of the things that I see is that something that hurts anyone in the woodworking trade from furniture to to all the way up is that you're always going to have the retiree and weekend warrior, people that you're competing with, and they can do it for a lot less cost than you can when you're doing it for a living because they're kind of doing it for fun. They're doing it on the side. They see it as a little bit extra money and they're going to cut their, they're going to be like 20 times cheaper than me. You know, that's, that's just a fact. That's what it's going to be. So you kind of always going across from that. So I always go for high skill projects. I very rarely take on uh easy small projects because I've just found you just can't make money on those. So I usually go for things I've, I've I've kind of became the reputation of when when somebody says something's hard to build or or it can't be done, they'll call me. And a lot of a lot of my projects come from referrals from other woodworkers. They'll actually tell them to to contact me. So the, I always say the projects I take on are kind of like they hurt my brain um, because I think about them in my sleep at night, how I'm going to pull them off. and uh, But I, I guess I enjoy the challenge. It's stressful, but I enjoy the challenge. Taking those
1: projects that, that hurt your brain, like you say, those types of projects that regular woodworkers say, I can't do this. I know a guy who can. Those projects demand more of your time. They demand more of your energy. They demand more of your thinking. And so they demand a higher dollar value, but projects like that, where you don't necessarily know how to do them at the start are hard to price. They're hard to put a dollar value on because you haven't, yeah, because you haven't done it yet. So how do you you Work with a client. Somebody calls you and they say, Here's a project. Ten other people have turned me down. They say it's impossible. You are the person that everyone recommends to do it. How do you start that conversation? And how do you price out a project that you
0: know from the start is going to give you problems? So the the technique I use is not something you would learn like in a school book of business, I'm sure. Um, you know, you got a lot of the principles everybody hears about with overhead and all of those principles. So the first few years I was in business, I really spent a lot of time really figuring out what my overhead was. How much do I need to make each day to break even? And it's surprising, even when you don't have a lot of overhead, it's surprising how high that can be. So knowing that is always a good thing to have. That's something, especially somebody in the beginning is not considering. They're thinking, oh, I made $300 a day. Well, I mean, if your overhead's $300 a day, you didn't make anything. So I always first, right off the bat, I, I try to estimate how much time that a project's going to take. And I take my overhead for the day, each day, and I, I keep that in mind. And then I figure out materials. I figure out how much the materials are going to be. That that figure right there always sometimes is higher than what you, people would even think. Um, that's why it's good when you're dealing with high-end clients and corporations, because there's a little bit more wiggle room on, on that kind of thing. But I'm always trying to do it as quickly as possible and not taking too much time because sometimes it may not turn into anything and i'm just wanting to get somebody a figure back so i take the overhead i take the how many days i think and i have a minimum of what i want to make a day and i just basically take that and i decide how many days and from that and i usually add a little buffer on top of that for the unknown you were talking about earlier you know there's things that happen I don't think I've ever gotten my buffer back by the way. Every time I put a buffer in there, I'm gonna say I'm gonna add an extra two or three days in there, even though I don't need it. Guess what? I always need them. Every buffer I've ever put in for materials, they always get eaten by something that you did not foresee. It's always something. So I always add a little buffer on there and from that I come out with the estimate and I usually give people a range. I usually say, you know, you're looking at 15 to 20,000 for this project. Is this something that you're, that you're interested in? If they say yes, That's when I move forward to doing any type of rough sketches or anything. I don't give anything before because people will run with your designs. They'll run with your sketches. And even when I give a sketch, I'll draw it in SketchUp and I'll change. I'll use the filter called rough sketch and it turns into like a napkin kind of drawing that makes sense to me and it conveys the design, but it does not give them exactly what it will look like because I do not charge for my estimates. And if they wanted a detailed design, they need to pay for it. So that's, that's the way I, I tackle it. I rarely, almost, really, almost never, told, i have told no, almost never, almost to a problem that I get way overloaded sometimes. Um, and, and my pricing, is, it's not like I'm too cheap. I'm, I've checked around all the time, but I think it comes back to our conversation that there's a shortage of people in the trades and people who are willing to pay, they want what they want. And they know that I can pull it off, so they're okay with it generally my customers price is not a decision making factor it's can you do what i want that's that's their biggest driver is can you do what i want and that's why it's good to be in the upper end higher end uh, clientele and corporations because it's not about the money for them
1: setting yourself apart from the rest of the furniture makers out there and having clients know that you are that high-end go-to furniture person is a great place to be because value then gets put on you on what you can do before you've even given a number. You've set yourself up as this person who takes on only those
0: types of high-end hard projects. So, and, and the work gets out quick when you do that. Um, I have not had any type of advertisement for more than five, six years at least. Uh, I just and and my phone rings constantly, voicemails, emails constantly. I'm even bad about calling some people back because I have so much on my plate. But um, advertising is something when I first got into the business that you can you can throw money. You might as well drive down the road and throw money out your car window on advertising. It does not go far <laughs> at all. And I learned that the hard way. I I hit way too much on that in the beginning. And um, I had some luck from a home show doing some things to get the word out there in the beginning. But word of mouth is key. Do not pay for your advertising. Get people out there selling for you that believe in you.
1: Word of mouth and also the reputation of your work. If you build good stuff, then that is the best business card yes. you can you can have out there if you build something that somebody is happy about then that is your advertising right there so yes it is important at times to advertise and to get your name out there and to do it in social media and magazines and newspapers and things like that but What it really comes down to is the work that you put out and the value that people who buy your work see in that because then they do the selling for you. Oh, yes.
0: Yeah, it's um, not another one, not on purpose. I didn't do it on purpose, but there's a whole underground of like professional remodelers and builders and they all have my name in their little phone Rolodex and they know whenever they need to get to a tight spot that they can always call me. Sometimes it's about one part of a project, like I have one coming up where I'm doing some custom doors with a little design that no one knew how to pull off, that the designer drew, and they called me to do the panels, and I'm fine with that. I like doing the hard part of a project, hand it over to the person building it, and I walk away, um, because whenever I do anything like that, it was priced very accordingly, so I just, uh, I-, I like having that part of the business too, where I don't own the entire aspect of a build. because. My goal is to do as much at my shop as possible. I really don't like going on site and setting up um, as much as I can. I like to do everything I can. And because, you know, as you know, controlled work conditions, tools are already set up. Whenever you start moving your tools around, you're looking at a lot of extra time.
1: I remember a project that you did where you had to hang some. Uh, Was well,
0: it I- the one with the 80s 80, the 80 TV that came out from the underside of a deck? <laughs> Was it that one? It was, it was, was not, those.
1: but I know seeing some projects that you've done that are in the field and just seeing the pained look on your face when you had to do it. And I understand that because working oh, in, yeah. in the field, not in a controlled environment, adds not only stress, but adds money and time and a lot of unknowns to a project that you can't always account for.
0: Yeah, whenever you have on-site work, you're always going to have the unknown variables. And it seems like it's becoming more common that when you show up on site, you have in your brain, you know exactly, which being in New York, you probably run into this even more, but I'll have exactly my brain, even the path I'm going to take when I get on site. And then you get there and there's somebody else working that's doing something that you didn't even know. They're working like right there where you're working, throws everything off. It can take take your job will take four hours more just because you're working around this person all day um that's the kind of things i don't like about when you get when you go on off away from the shop you those are those are variables you don't account for in a quote that's just something you have to deal with and that's where that buffer comes back whenever i put the buffer in whether it's for materials or for time you're always going to have something that comes up i don't think i've ever had a project that something didn't come up that made it take longer than i thought
1: exactly
0: and it even takes longer
1: than you thought after doing it for so long. When you add in that it's going to take longer, it takes longer than you've even added in that time. There's nothing you can do about it. It's the nature of the business. When you're building physical things, then issues are going to come up and you just have to be able to roll with it and have your pricing in a way that you don't lose money end of the
0: day yeah and you know and on that pricing thing i also have a sliding scale that when i have a lot of repeat customers there's things you learn and pick up on like i said uh, there could be somebody that they always seem to schedule other people working the next time i do a project for them i count for that i count for that loss i have one corporate client that whenever they say we meet about the scope then we meet again about the plan then we meet again about the schedule they want to meet about. And so I've realized that I'm spending as many times in meetings, as much time in the meetings as I am actually building it. So I actually have to charge double for that, for those projects. I charge double and it still is not as profitable as some other jobs, charging double. Um, so it, it, the client matters too on what their expectations are for the build. Because that time you spend not in the shop, as you know, design and all those things that go along with it, you need to be getting paid for that as well, too. If not, you're working for free all your nights and weekends. At 13 years now, each year, I try to do a better job of getting paid for everything that I do. But I don't think anyone will ever be perfect at it. But I really try to get close to everything that I'm doing, I'm being paid for. Exactly.
1: It's a furniture business. You're building the furniture, but you also need to do the business side you need to take into account how much it's going to cost to build something materials all that but also how much time you're going to be spending in the office how much time you're going to be making designs how much time you're going to be writing back emails how much time you're going to be sitting talking right. with the client saying the same thing over and over and over again yes. to different people who are on the project so i hear you on that and you just have to do the best that you can. And you're never going to get it hundred percent. I'm sure in your entire career, there hasn't been one job oh. where you thought, this is what I need to get. This is the amount of time. This is, this is, this is, and then end of the day, end of the project, you checked off all those boxes and said, well, hundred hundred hundred, hundred percent, 10 for 10. I got, I got yeah. it all. I got it all on that one. And you've been doing <laughs> this
0: for a long time. Yeah, you know what I've learned is the ones that'll come out and get you are the small little projects that you know and you're like, Yeah, I can take care of that. That was not a big deal. Those are the ones that become the biggest pain. You have problems with finishes, you have problems with uh, CNC machining it, you have trouble with every single part of the bill. It's like you couldn't charge enough for this project. And it's the one it's like your lowest project money wise of the entire year. I have that happen to me at least once a year. When I first started, it happened to me way more than that. And it, it makes you question your direction in life when that happens. It's not fun to know you're working for free, but I think you become better at recognizing those alarm bells and if you can act in time, but it's the small projects. I think the bigger the project, the more time you sit down and think about it and you're probably more accurate, but it's the small ones that look like it's not a big deal because there's really not an easy project. I don't think I've ever had one really. I mean, if there is, the weekend warrior is going to do it. It's not going to be me. So I'm, I, I think every project has some type of wild card in it of, of something that could go wrong.
1: Definitely. It's always the ones that you let your guard down that you think, yes, Oh, Oh, I I've done this before. And you just send off an email right. and say, yeah, I'll take that project. And then you don't think about it until you actually have to build it. Or you think, yeah okay, this is a small one. I'll fit it in between these big ones. And it's the ones that you you don't pay attention to because you're so laser focused on all these big projects. And then small projects just slip in under the radar and you realize you need to give that same attention to detail to big projects and small projects. Because even though the small projects aren't making you as much money as say the bigger ones will, you could very easily lose money on that because you're not charging more and you need to you need to always remember that you need to always take into account that every project is going to be hard doesn't matter the size doesn't matter a client that you've worked with a thousand times before doesn't matter you need to take each project in and think about it in the same way
0: or they're going to bite you yep they will every time And and you know, what goes along closely with that is timing. Um, I I would be the first, I would say four or five years, I would kind of let the customer drive it and that they would say to you something like, okay, we'll do this project. If you can have it done by the three dates are Thanksgiving, Christmas and fourth of July, those are the three that everybody bases their life off from. And at first I'd be like, I can do, I can get that in my Thanksgiving. And you tell like three or four people that, and you realize it was October. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get all this done? And I went through about four or five years with that. And finally, I said, no more. I'm not going to do it. And when somebody said, can you do it? And right off the bat at the meeting, I'd say Thanksgiving is going to be tight. And they usually, this is the crazy part. You know what they say? They go, okay, just thought I'd ask. And I'm like, wow, I could have saved myself a lot of stress. (laughs) Because I was always trying to get these deadlines that sometimes they just threw it out there. They didn't have a specific time. So I try to drive the timelines now myself. And I don't give an exact timeline because like we're talking about, things happen. So I give people progress and I tell them about, but I don't like to put a date to it because you just never know, especially now with shipping and ordering things. You just don't know what might happen. And then you have an upset customer because you committed to a timeline. I would rather give them a two or three week window when it'll be done instead of an exact date.
1: It's a very customer service driven business where you always want to do right by your customer you always want to make them happy because end of the day you want that word of mouth from them you want that positive feedback from them so you can keep doing work because you don't want to lose potential clients but you also forget that it's just as detrimental to your business to not be able yes. to deliver on something or yeah. to put yourself in a situation where it's not physically possible for you to do that having so many jobs going on at the same time makes it impossible for you to, number one, take good quality care of yourself and yourself being the most important tool you have in the shop. And number two, give quality care to the projects you're making. So instead of doing one project in a time frame that you can handle and then doing the next one in a little bit later than the client wanted, but still doing it professionally and getting it done well, you end up tearing out your hair, not sleeping, being in the shop all hours of the night and putting out multiple projects that are all mediocre instead of one yeah. or two projects in an appropriate timeline that are all good. And it, it's a it's a trap that everybody falls down at one point In their career, where they overextend and then can't do it. But you need to remember that if you find yourself in that situation, then you have the tools to dig yourself out of it. You have the tools to go to that client before it becomes a problem and say, I need a little bit of extra time on this to make your project as good as you're going to want it. And the client should say yes. And if they don't, then that's probably not a client that you wanted to work with in the exactly. beginning and you won't work exactly. and you won't work with them again. You'll get the project done and,
0: and that will be, be the end of it.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's where it comes back. I seen, I'm hearing myself say over and over again, repeat customers are so, cause you learn how each of you work. And I've noticed that whenever I work for a new project manager, they usually are not telling the truth about the project timeline because they're actually assuming as a person who fabricates something that you're not going to meet your deadline. And so especially when it requires some onsite install work, whenever I work with a new builder or remodeler, they'll always tell me a timeline and I'll say, now, how accurate is that? Because when I show up, I need to be ready to install. And a lot of times, they're, sometimes they're, they're adjusting their time schedule by six months, like giving me six months early. And I explained to them, and I'm, I've got to order these things. And when I, I'm going to be ready, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be ready to install. So I have to be really careful about a new client on how they work. Because a lot of them, like, to, have you ever ran into that? They just give you like this deadline that, like, they're wanting you to build something that's going into this uh, studio apartment. And the apartment's not even framed up yet. Like, I've ran into that before. It's like, the, the thing that I'm installing is not, the room isn't even there yet. And they're telling me it has to be ready by then.
1: I've encountered that so many times and the best part is that if it's custom work if it's a built-in if it's something that needs to be built specifically for that space when the space isn't built out yet they don't know the exact size and that usually changes if you get a project that you say okay "Okay, the construction is going to be ready in four months and you say okay and then you start building it and you do that then you're going to get a call a month Mm -hmm. later, two months later, three months later, saying that, oh, there was an issue with a wall. Oh, we had to move something. We need it now this Mm -hmm. size. And I'm not saying don't be proactive with your builds. I'm not saying don't build things beforehand and give yourself a good buffer of time after because you don't want to be building things right up to the last minute and delivering
0: something. It, it's kind of a double-edged sword. What, what I generally try to do is I generally try to stop by a project. Like I come by like I'm some kind of auditor with <laughs> and I, I just come in and I look and I see where they are because I wouldn't like to start a building before the walls are framed at the very earliest because things change. And I've had people, I've had interior designers, I've had um, the builders or modelers say before, well, can't you just build it from the plans? I can, but I'd much rather wait till their framing was up because I still have plenty of time to build it. So I'd rather just know that's where the wall is gonna be. Um, and I usually stop by even all the way up to the electrical stage because no one cares about the project in that aspect, in that area of that more than I do. And I'm the one that's gonna feel the pain when there's an outlet that wasn't there they decided to put on all of a sudden. It's gonna take me time on my install. So, Sometimes I'll stop by a project. I'll just stop by when they're building more than once, like four or five times, just to get an idea of what the schedule is. But that's where I've really came up with understanding that the dates I'm given sometimes have no meaning whatsoever, and it's just adding undue stress to me. So you, you need to control your price, you need to control your time, and don't let others set it for you. And like you said, if, if they are setting it for you, they are not your client. Because I need to respect that you understand your timing and you need to you understand your process and there's plenty of people out there who will understand and respect you for that you don't have to put yourself through that stress
1: and i know there's a lot of people listening who have different types of companies and maybe they're not hitting that super high-end build so they they think i can't stop by a project four or five times check on the electrical check on this do that because I can't build that into my price. And I get that, but there's things that you can do to keep an eye on a project. Just because it might not be super, super high end doesn't mean you can't check in with the builder, send an email to the client, ask them, has anything changed? Get that all in writing because on delivery day, if you haven't checked in about the project and you show up and something's changed, something doesn't fit, that isn't on the contractor. That falls right. on you, unfortunately.
0: Right, that's true. And that's a good point. Not only just the high end, also it, t- it matters geographically where you are. Like I, I live just outside of Lexington, Kentucky and most all of my work is in that town. And I'm almost always every day going across the town back and forth. And it's easy for me to stop Generally, the work we do neighborhood, there's just like three areas that all the houses are really concentrated in. So it's very easy for me to stop by. And what I found is a huge plus, if I can stop by and for example, the stone layers inside and I tell him what I'm doing, he's like, hey man, he goes, you give me a line of where it is, he goes, I'll lay the stone up to it and that way you don't describe. And you know how big of a deal that is. It's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. So I've learned to stop by if I see the electrician or whatever, I let them know what I'm going to be doing, and a lot of times they'll help me out. They'll do things to make it easier. They're like, you may you may not put the box in there, and I'll just run the wire, and you can do the box. And I'm, yes, it's great. Unfortunately, a lot of times the builders or the project managers or their modelers, sometimes they don't understand how all the the facets fit together. But if you can catch the guy who's in the trade there, he'll work with you. And we we you know everybody wants to make everybody's job easier. So I really feel like I have a connection to the job, and and that's what makes the job go well. That the guy who's running the project goes, wow, this guy just came in here and did it and gone. He did a really good job. But part of it is because I kind of basically come in there and make sure that I'm working with the trades, especially on the larger projects. A lot of the projects we have, we're like the final, we're like icing on the cake or we're the, we're the jewelry on top. So I truly am like one of the last people to come in and it's good and bad. It's good because I usually don't have to work around a lot of other trades and I can spread out my tools but the bad thing is, I have to deal with whatever was done. I am the one that has to make it work right. If it's the slot's not big enough for something to go through, I have to cut it. If there's no one else, you know. I have to do it. Um, so th- that's where it, it's 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 uh, worth stopping by for me. But that's a good point. Uh, some sometimes and geographically or price wise, it may not be worth to do that.
1: It may not be worth it to do exactly that. But that concept, that business practice of keeping an eye on a job that you have is something that everybody who has a furniture business should be doing because furniture is, like you just said, the last thing that goes into a job. So even if it's not your fault, if it doesn't work if what you built doesn't work, then that leaves a bad taste in the customer's mouth yes. for you completely, completely out of your control. If you say this wasn't like this on the plans, they say, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times. Well, that person isn't here anymore. So you need yep. to fix it. <laughs> and then you're in that position where it falls on you and it does and, right. it, and it happens and it's it's just something that happens in the business and it's just something that you have to take into account. And you can, you can draw a line in the sand and you can say, that's not my fault and I'm not going to deliver or I'm just gonna leave this here. And if you don't like it, take me to court. And people can run their business like that. And if that's what you wanna do, that's what you wanna do. But if you don't want to do that, if you don't wanna be that person, then you have to keep an eye on the projects. Now, only because we've just been going on and on about things that that you shouldn't do or that you've seen on the job <laughs> site, I have another one for you. And that is when clients ask for a price or a timeline date at the job site, or you just meet them on the first call and they ask, what's this going to cost or how long is this going to take? What's your thought on that?
0: I'm interested to hear what you say first. Tell me what you say.
1: (laughs) Well, I always say that I cannot do that. I can't give you an accurate price on the job site
0: or on the first meeting. That is exactly what I say. And and you know what? Uh, 50% of the time, they'll actually come back to like, just ballpark, ballpark, just kind of give the ballpark. And I'm like, I'm not even going to throw a ballpark out there because I don't know myself right now what that is. <laughs> I have to go back and figure it out. They don't have a full idea
1: of the project, so you can't ballpark something that no Your client says, "I want a vanity and give me a ballpark yeah. number."
0: And I didn't account for that in the beginning. That was a hard lesson that I learned because I would just see it as you know, well, it's just something I get to build. But um, yeah, back to your what you were saying about. I always do not, I don't ever commit to a date and I don't commit to the price on initial meeting. I want to get away from the client and I want to think about what works for me and what's best for me. Because once I come up with that date and that price, if they say no, they are not the client for me. And I rarely have this happen anymore, when people used to really drill me for getting a better price, I would tell them, and this is so true, my wife has a list a mile long and if I'm going to work for free, I'll go work at our house. And that is 100% true because she has a list a mile long and she she knows it's true. And, and so I always let people know that I'm not in the position right now where you can barter with me. This is what it's worth for me to do the job. Yeah, apparently it works because I, I rarely have a no. I think that you can gauge where you are with your pricing by how much you get a no, no matter what you're doing, whether it's low end, middle grade, or if everyone's saying no to you, um, you might be too high. But if everybody's saying yes, you need to step back and say, do i need to be charging more and uh, what i try to do at least once a year is i go to i'm gonna call them out restoration hardware i like to go there and i like to walk through there and i like to look at their prices that's probably one that's national ethan allen's another one i like to go to furniture stores like that and i like to walk around and i like to see their pricing because you and i who build furniture it blows my mind what they charge for things that some of the things i could turn out in one day <laughs> and what they charge it blows my mind. So uh, way I look at it is I should I'm a custom furniture builder. My prices should be higher than Ethan Allen Restoration Hardware because it's custom. So I always keep that in mind. And if somebody's new and they're really wanting to figure out if their pricing's right, go to Restoration Hardware's website. If you don't have one near you, just go out there and look look at what they're charging for things from coffee tables to um, console tables and it'll get your mind in the right place. People don't realize how much they can charge. And I think going to like restoration hardware and refreshing your mind, because the hardest thing is when you can build it yourself, you just cannot fathom charging some of the prices that they charge because you're like, no, it's, it's easy. It's like one sheet of plywood and a couple of things, that you, but that's not the way the industry sees it. So I, I've gotten better about that. And I think that pricing is the biggest mistake people make new coming out.
1: People forget that because they have the skills that that is a premium
0: yeah. And, and yeah. Pe- people yeah. forget that. And then
1: they let the customer dictate a price yep. when the customer can't yep. build it. That would be like somebody from the stands saying, you should run the marathon this fast. And then the runner say no. okay. And then they have to run yeah. that fast when that person has no yeah. idea what they're talking about.
0: I think that's the biggest thing, just getting some years under your belt. but. I feel like I'm gonna have it all figured out right when I'm ready to walk away from it.
1: <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. And I just wanna point out for everyone listening that you have had this company for over 13 years. So you you're at a point where you're comfortable turning down work because you have that reputation. I know there's people who are starting out who turning down work is hard and they
0: yes
1: they they want to build that portfolio they want to keep building things to get their skills going to get clients going to make a name for themselves so people listening remember that this is advice from somebody who has made it in their career and yes you should aspire to that but you don't necessarily need to be doing that from day one. Is that, does that, that yeah. make, that makes sense, right? Because yeah, you I, didn't I do agree. that from it,
0: day one. I, well, I agree, and, but I can build on that for someone who was new, what I, in reflection, a lot of times when in the beginning for those factors where I wanted to make sure that I had something and I was not, um, I, I was wasn't sitting there in a shop with nothing, you know, nothing to build. I would say yes to some things that I normally wouldn't. I thought eh, it wasn't really that great. But what you always have to factor in, what opportunities are you passing up because you took this project that was barely paying your overhead, you weren't making a lot. What, what, are, you, what are you missing out on? And, and what I found is that, and this goes back to our talk about shortage of people in the trades, I really feel like most anywhere that you live, there's a need for what type of service that we provide. And if you're spending your time doing work that is barely paying the bills, you're not able to get out and hit the ground running networking with people like designers and remodelers, people with the higher-end um, projects And higher-end, you know, it's all about money, it, for sure, with me either. But uh, let's face it, higher-end projects are more fun to build. They're, you get to use better wood. You get to use better finishes. You get to buy better tools. And that's, that's why I just seem to gravitate towards the higher-end. Market. But I agree when you're building your portfolio, you need to take what you can get. But I think you need to quickly figure out you're only taking the things that are building your business and your brand. Don't waste time on things that are not going to build your business or your brand.
1: 110% I agree with that. And I wasn't saying don't say no to anything, (laughs) I was saying it's hard. To say no. It's no hard, it's hard to have that understanding that there will be more work in the future and hard to have that that bigger picture look saying if I don't take this job, there'll be something else along the lines. It's hard because yeah. I'm mean, gonna be honest, there isn't always another job. There isn't always another job for some people, but building everything that comes along, the stuff that you don't want, you end up continuing to build that stuff that you don't want. And you look up a couple months, a couple years later, and you realize you're only building things you don't want. And right. what's the right. point of having a business and working for yourself and having your own furniture business if you hate it, if you're just building yes. things that you don't want to build.
0: Yes. And I've borderline found myself almost in that situation uh, multiple times in those last 13 years. And when I look back, it's because I took projects that I shouldn't have and that I knew that I probably shouldn't. Certain times of the year, you'd be like, oh, no. And they're like, I got this coming up in January. And you're thinking, well, I don't know anything going on in January. Yeah, I'll take that. those are the ones that come back to bite you um you just gotta really especially when it's just me um i've had up to three employees it was my least favorite time that i was doing i realized i was becoming a manager which that's what i kind of left in the corporate world it's great when people want to be that way it's great when people say you know build your business and step out of it that's not why i got out of the corporate world to stop doing the hands-on work i want to do that but to do that That's where I have to charge the extreme premium that I'm talking about. You've got the owner operator coming in as a project manager designer. Everything is right in me and I don't have anybody duplicating my efforts. So when people have me come, they have to pay a premium because I'm not sending out a guy that's making half of what I am. They're getting me and there's only one of me. So I I have to charge appropriately because of that. If someone has a team of three other guys that work under them or four or five, then you can take on some of the projects that I'm saying stay away from because you can keep your guys busy, um, you know, keep them working. And But I try to do work that is fulfilling, slash makes enough that it's worth doing. And so I look at it differently, but every business is different. You really got to find out what can you build the best of anybody else? And that's what you go after. And your your high-end clients will come. And I think that's true for me. no matter where you live, I think that'll happen.
1: I could talk shop with you all day. And I, and I love it because you are somebody who knows your business. You're somebody who has taken that journey and made your business into what you wanted it to be through the highs and the lows. And I'm sure there were a lot of both, but you persisted through all that to be where you are today. And that is a successful furniture business. Now, there are a lot of people listening who want to start their own furniture business and they are in the corporate world and they see a different path for themselves or they're just getting out of college or high school or wherever they are and they see the trades as not something that is below them, but something that they aspire to be a part of, something that they want to join, because that is where their passion is. And there's also people who have had their businesses for a long time, who heard that call and decided to have their own business. And they feel that they're just not getting out of it everything that they want to. So from your perspective, as somebody who's been in this for a while, what's some advice that you could give to people listening today
0: who want to have their own furniture business one of the most important things is to look at what you enjoy building what would you like for your what would you like to build all day if you could if money wasn't a factor i like to look at that and then i like to see how do you apply that to How you could dominate that industry whatever that is if you want to build tables or you want to specialize in 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 custom uh uh, built-ins or whatever you want to customize in uh, whatever you want to specialize in and i think that's the key and then also after every project i always do a reflection sometimes a reflection just means driving in the car away from the job i always think about what went well what didn't go well what would i do differently this will never happen again and it does. You don't see the benefits to that really fast. But if you do that over a period of 13 years, you really start running a, a well-oiled machine. And you start realizing really quickly what type of projects you like and what type of projects you don't like. And as, as you get an understanding of that in your brain, when these uh, client potential clients come up to you, whether it's just up on the street and they walk up to you or at a, a convention or whatever, when they're talking, you're listening and you're saying, does this meet with the things that projects that I Seem to be perfectly fitted for, and when they don't, you can be confident about saying no because you realized, nope, done that kind of thing before, and it's nothing but a headache. And I think as long as you can learn from your mistakes, I think you can you can go after whatever type of specialty build you want to you want to go after. It all
1: boils down to learning from your mistakes, not falling into yes. the same hole each and every single time, and that reflection period after the job is very, very important. Writing things down, having that concrete reminder of all the bad things that happen on your job and the good things too, because good things are important to remember, but learning from your mistakes, writing down those bad things, because you are a furniture builder, you are a business owner, you have a life outside of the business. And sometimes you forget and you don't want to keep falling down that same hole every single job because that is what can really hurt a business.
0: And it hurts your reputation, it hurts everything. And then you start going on a downward spiral. And and one of the stats I heard that just scared me to death was that most businesses, you know, fail within five years. You hear that all the time. Um I used to think it was because of pricing. I used to think it was because they didn't have business sense. I used to think it was all these reasons. But when I hit the five year mark, I instantly knew what it was. It's not those things. I think people get burned out. They just work themselves to death. And at five years is your breaking point. You, you, if you don't have things in place to take away the things, it's a buildup of five years, and you're just ready to walk away. At that point, it's better to be an employee. Um, it's easier. And you know, there's times, I'm not saying it's easy. At 13 years, I regularly am on a job site, and I'm jealous of people. I see them getting up oh, it's lunchtime, sitting down, not a care in the world, you can tell they're there, their boss isn't there, and I'm thinking, man, it's been a long time since I've had that just it's weekend who cares to put it all behind you that's something you give up when you're a business owner, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because what you get out of it is freedom. If I want to schedule a week long vacation, I just schedule it in the calendar I don't have to ask anybody you know so I really like that freedom and that's what you you give up you give up, respo- you you take a lot of responsibility, but you You get a lot more freedom out of it and and you just always got to be stepping back like you said and looking and making sure that you're not going down the wrong path because all it takes is one bad agreement Uh, a remodeler could say hey we have 100 units coming up where you need to build this whatever it is and you're like yeah i'll do it and it turns into a six-month project but you don't even want to do it that kind of thing can send you in a downward spiral you got to always be really careful about that
1: i appreciate all the advice that you've shared with everybody listening. And I know everybody listening appreciates it too. You shared knowledge from an impressive career that you've had so far. And I know with everything you've learned, that career is going to continue and you are going to continue to find happiness in what you do. So thank you so much for sitting down with me today, for sharing your story and for sharing your knowledge with the furniture community.
0: No problem, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs.
0: Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.